Janae, Sydney, and Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your faith story with us this morning uh, as a source of comfort and as a challenge for all of us to continue to grow in our faith as well. So thank you for leading us and for blessing us in that way. Gateway family, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please. We are in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And while you're looking for that, we just started a brand new series where we are going to be in Romans for who knows how long, somewhere between 20 and perhaps even up to 40 weeks. And uh, what we've been learning, what we learned last week, is how a former Pharisee and persecutor of the church named Saul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And on account of that, his life was reoriented. It was flipped upside down. So much so that this great persecutor of the church became the greatest church planter the world has ever seen. The greatest evangelist the the world has ever seen. And he becomes the author of the very book that we're looking at today, the book of Romans. And indeed, he is the author of 12 letters and one book. I think the one difference between the the 13 different letters that he wrote in the New Testament, Romans is the only book, a very clear, concise, theological teaching on who God is, why it matters, and why it should matter to you and to me as well. And so what Paul taught us last week is he wanted to give us a greater understanding of the problem that we all face. And what is that? That every single one of us apart from the intervening grace of God, was exactly like Saul before he became Paul, before his encounter with Jesus, before Jesus stood in his way and said, why are you persecuting me? All of us were headed in the wrong direction. All of us were leaving God, running away from God. But then, the second thing that he wants us to know is that we are introduced to the solution. And the solution is not a fad. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a health, wealth, and happiness ploy. It's nothing like that. The solution is a person, Jesus Christ. And in the same way that Saul's heart melted on account of meeting Jesus on the road, so much so that his entire life had forever changed, that's what he wants you to know too. That's what he wants us to know, that our life can be changed as well. Romans, the book of Romans, it's all about grace. And while a lot of people are enamored by grace, a lot of people are intrigued by it, the Apostle Paul was absolutely gripped by the idea of grace. I shared this passage of Scripture with you last week, but I want to do it one more time. First Timothy chapter 1, he says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me so abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying, that is deserving of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So in this book, Paul is going to be talking to both religious and irreligious people. To the irreligious, here's what he says. He says, part of the reason why God showed grace and mercy to me, the chief of sinners, is so that God could use me as an example to prove to you that no matter how far gone you think you are, you can't outsin the cross. 
You can't run away from him. That on account of what Jesus did on the cross, all can be saved. Everyone who turns to him can be saved. What a remarkable note of grace. But to the religious, he also has a message for them too. He's going to show us that no matter how much you think you've done, how much you think you've pulled up your bootstraps to do these great things, these moral things, these upright things, you can't save yourself. You can't be moral enough. You can't be good enough. That at the end of the day, it's all about the person and the work of Jesus. That's what this entire book is going to reveal to us. So last week, I shared with you a little bit about the context of the author, Saul Turn Paul. This week, I want to give you the context of the book and where it was written. So we have a little map here, if we can show that. I know this is a little bit small, but they're going to show it on the big screen so that you have a good sense of what this looks like. Here's where Paul is when he's writing this. He's right here in Corinth. And for the last 25 years, the Apostle Paul has been throughout the Mediterranean Sea on the northwest side. He starts all the way down here in Jerusalem. This is where he comes from in Tarsus. We learned that last week. And he's been all over the northwest region sharing the good news of the gospel with Gentiles, those who are now included into the family of God. But now he's at a crossroads. Now he has a problem. His head and his heart are waging war with one another. His head wants to go all the way up north and then over west to Rome. This is where he wants to be. Why? Because Rome is the center of the known world. We're in the midst of the time that they called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. For the first time, perhaps, in human history, the entire world is at peace. And all roads lead to Rome. So if Paul wants to see the gospel advance to the four corners of the known world, then Rome is the place to go. And then he can continue to go up north, and he can go to Spain, and throughout the rest of the western world, everyone can hear the good news of the gospel. However, his heart is telling him that he needs to travel all the way back to Tarsus and then back down to Jerusalem because there's a great and terrible problem that he is recognizing and seeing. Even though he wants to go to Rome, there's an even bigger problem that's brewing over here, and it's this. The Jews, when they're thinking about the term children of God, they don't know just how big it is. And so Paul wants to go back and tell them the term children of God, it includes not just Jewish Christians, but Gentile Christians as well. Let me tell you about all the amazing things that God is doing throughout the Mediterranean Sea. And now that the children of God also include Gentile believers. So he knows he has to go back. And so what he does is while in Corinth, he writes to the church in Rome, for the sake of the benefit of the original listeners, but also for you and for me as well. And this is something that I find uh, somewhat remarkable, really. And, And this is kind of an argument out of ignorance, so don't take this as gospel truth. Take this as kind of just the musings of Justin for a moment. I think that it's the providence of God that he never made it to Rome because that's what prompted him to put pen to page and to write out this great book, not only for the benefit of the original listeners, but for you and for me. It's the very fact that he couldn't get there, that he writes the book. And I find that so amazing in God's grace, even though he sees this as a great and terrible problem. We benefit from it. 
And so he gives this letter to Phoebe. Phoebe goes to Rome, and he goes back to Jerusalem. And so that's where he reads, or writes this book. He wants Rome to know. He wants the world to know. He wants you to know why this book matters. It's all about God and, and what he has done and why it matters for your life and for my life as well. One clear, concise, theological teaching on who God is and how he can change your life in the same way that he changed the Apostle Paul's life. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the book of Romans, this past week, um, Pastor Adam and myself put together a little bit of a snapshot, and on this you can see uh, what the main themes are, who wrote it, why it was written, where it was written, how it got there, even has a, a layout of the structure of the book and key themes and application, all those kinds of things. So my encouragement to you is to print this off, Put it in your Bible for, for the duration of this series, and I think it will serve you well. Speaking of your Bible, do you have it? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Chapter 1, starting at verse 13. And while we look at this, I want you to take note of three words that are going to make all the difference as we walk through this book. Three words that are going to be vital to our faith. Gospel, faith, and wrath. Take a look. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. There he is. He's talking, I want to be with you, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So let me walk you through these three words that make all the difference. The first one is the word gospel. The Greek word euangelion, which means good news or a good herald. And it's a message of grace and mercy. We see that in verse 16. Look again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so this Greek word, euangelion, it simply means this. Think about John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world so that we might all have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but to save the world through him. That is the good news in the midst of the terrible problem that every single one of us faces. And what is that problem? We're going to get to that in just a second. But the second word is faith. And here's the definition that I I want you to take note of in your note sheet. Faith is trusting something enough to act. This is the Greek word pistuo, and it's very similar but also different to our version of faith. Oftentimes when we think of faith, we see it as a synonym of belief, right? So something that you intellectually affirm or give your assent to. 
But pistuo is so much more than that. It's not just intellectual assent. It's something that causes you to move. Think of it this way. It is the very motivation which leads to action. It leads you to jump in, to move forward. That is what he is talking about. So let me just give um, a bit of an example of this. And it's going to require some crowd participation. And I got the praise team here, so I get to ask them to help me out so that I'm not doing this all alone. If you're with your friends and family at your house, you get to do this together, and you can laugh at each other at each other's expense, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And if you're alone, you can just laugh at me, and we'll do this together, all right? So four questions, and if the answer to this question applies to you, I want you to raise your hand. Is that fair? Okay, so here's the first question. How many of you believe, by a show of hands, that you should floss? Okay, Um, if your hand isn't raised, it should be for the sake of uh, dentists everywhere. Floss your teeth, all right? So 100% participation, hopefully, right? We got 100% here, excellent. Second question, how many of you believe it's good to exercise? We're shooting 100% here. We're doing an amazing job. All right, number three, how many of you believe it's important to eat healthy? Perfect. Here in the auditorium, we're shooting 100%. Oh, even, yeah, upstairs, 100%, all of us. Fourth and final question. This is critical. How many of you do all three regularly? Oh, shoot. That's so weird. Oh, no. Hopefully at your house, at least a couple of them raised their hand, but here we're shooting a pretty poor average. And so here, that's kind of what we see when we're talking about kind of this intellectual ascent, something that we believe in, but it doesn't necessarily lead to action. It doesn't lead or inspire us to jump in and to follow the very things that we believe. That's what Pistuo is. That's what he's telling us about. You can't just believe in it. You have to do something about it. Look again at verse 17. It says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, that's pistuo, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will, what's the word? Live by faith. They will live by faith. Circle, highlight, and underlined. So that's what it means to them. Let me just give you one more example of this, and this one's a little bit sad, but let's suppose for a moment you are stuck in a burning building, and you are on the fifth story, and you're in a window, you're looking down, and there you see a bunch of firefighters, and they got a big net, but to you it looks like a tiny little net. And you know that your only options are to stay, and the flames are all behind you, or to jump. Now, in that moment, you could say, I believe intellectually that if I jumped, the firefighters are going to catch me. But it's not enough just to believe in it. You actually have to act. And so the word pistuo, what it's trying to insinuate or to suggest, it's not faith until you leave that window and jump. Then it becomes faith. The very motivation which leads to action. And then we get to our third and final word, and this is in verse 18. The wrath of God, there it is, is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. How? Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And I want you to look again at verse 18 for a moment. Look at that fifth word. Do you see what it says? The word is, is. The word is, is? Is, is the word. It's the fifth word in the sentence. And this is really important. What tense is the word is? It's not past tense. It's not future tense. It's present tense, right? And so what is Paul implying? He's not implying that, you know, if you continue to do bad things, if you go down that wrong path, that eventually God's wrath will come upon you and there will be hellfire and brimstone and he's going to send that upon you. What he is saying is we're going to experience the wrath of God right now. The wrath of God is being presented to us. And then you might ask that question, really? Where? I don't recall seeing you know, lightning bolts flashing and hellfire coming down from the sky. I, I don't see that anywhere. What's this wrath that we're currently experiencing in my life or in my world? Well, let me give you a definition, and I think it'll give us a clue. This is the definition that I put in your note sheet. Wrath is God's settled, fair, and right anger fulfilled in giving us what we want. Hmm. giving us what we want. More often than anything else in Scripture, the way God pours out his wrath on those who are not following him is by simply handing them over to the things that they want, acquiescing, giving it to them. God says, here I stand at the door and I'm knocking upon your heart. Let me in. And we choose deliberately to walk away, to run away from God. And eventually God simply says, here you go. You might recall when we were in our apologetic series just a couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking about that really difficult topic on hell. And C.S. Lewis gave us a a better understanding of what hell ultimately is. Here's the quote that, that I shared with you. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. See, the wrath of God isn't always summarized in destruction and calamity and lightning bolts. More often than not, the wrath of God is simply revealed through separation. Letting you have the very things that you say that you want. But in the end, it will be like chaff in your mouth. And you will realize the things that you have been earnestly seeking throughout your entire life are not the things that you need and they will leave you dry and bitter and angry and afraid and frustrated and God wants you to turn away from those things and I think the best picture of this if we can just take a look a deep dive into this separation motif and just how painful it is is to look at the story of Jesus before the cross. Let me just walk you through the story really quickly. First, Jesus endures a kangaroo court. He's sentenced to die a sinner's death, even though he hasn't done anything wrong. And during all of this, even though all of these false witnesses come up and they say false things, Jesus remains silent as a lamb. Then, 
He endures flogging and beating and torture. And again, he says no words. And then Roman soldiers take out a new mechanism, which is intended when it hits your back, it tears flesh from bone. And he receives the 40 lashes minus one. And once again, he doesn't utter a word. Then they create a crown of thorns, and it's so difficult to dig into his head, but they push as hard as they can so that these thorns dig into his skull. And again, he doesn't say anything. Then they give him a cross, which he has to carry all the way from the court, all the way up to the hill called Golgotha, the land of the skull. And he doesn't say anything. There they take nine-inch nails, and they pierce his hands and his feet. And even though he is writhing in pain, he doesn't say a word. And then when he is lifted upon the cross, the Roman soldiers begin to mock him and sell his clothes. And even the mob breaks out and they say things like, he was able to save others. Clearly, he can't even save himself, even though he is the creator God and he had all the power in the universe to do whatever he wanted, but he stayed and he said nothing. Throughout all of the torture and all of the pain, Jesus says nothing. And it's not until God the Father turns his face away does Jesus break his silence. And finally, he calls out, why? Why have you forsaken me? And I think about that. And again, I don't know if this is a helpful way of thinking about this, but if given the option between all of the physical mutilation and suffering that Jesus had to incur and temporary separation from God, I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would pick this one. I don't want to have to deal with all of that, all that pain, all that suffering, all that anguish. I'm going to take the the temporary suffering. And yet, what, what we see in Scripture is that the only thing that causes Jesus to break his silence is that one. And so there's something here about the wrath of God that we still don't fully understand. That there's nothing more gratuitous, nothing more pain-filled than being separated from God the Father. It's the only thing that causes Jesus to wonder why and to cry out in pain. And the reason why Paul writes this book is because he wants to make sure that no man, woman, or child ever has to experience the separation from God. Paul says, if you want to understand the good news of the gospel, then you have to understand the predicament that we're all in. A way of thinking about this, good news isn't good news until you understand the bad news. That's what creates the sweetness of the good news. Does that make sense? First, we have to come to grips with the problem that we all face before we can fully appreciate the solution that is Jesus' death on the cross. Do you know what's so offensive about the cross? Do you know what causes us to kind of get a little bit antsy and frustrated even when we look at the cross? The cross is a constant reminder that I can't do it myself. I can't fix myself. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't compare myself to others. I can't say I'm doing better than most. There's there's no intellectual exercise that I can do. There's no physical things that I can do to save myself. The cross starts with an insulting supposition that you can't do it yourself. 
that you needed to be redeemed by an outside source, that you needed to be saved. And see, many of us, that leads us to our knees in humility to say, thank you, God, for making a way. But for others of us, we might look at that and be insulted and say, how dare you? Why do you think I need that? And in fact, when we see the gratuitous nature of his own son being torn apart on a cross, we might say to ourselves, why was that necessary? See, it's only when we fully come to grips with the problem do we appreciate the sweetness that is the solution. I love the way that Timothy Keller puts it. He says it like this. If you don't understand or believe the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill, empower, or move you. And so what Paul is going to do for us today is to reveal just how big this problem is in my life and in your life too. Every single one of us are struggling with this. Without the problem, the solution is cheap, weak, and insignificant. And Paul wants to start with that problem. He wants us to understand more fully what our sin nature does and where it leads us. And so that's what I want us to look at for the remainder of our time. A sequence which starts from how we treat God, which ultimately leads to our own destruction. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse 21. Verse 21 says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the first thing that happens and how a culture crumbles. The first thing we do is we ignore God. We ignore him. You know, I remember watching um, Home Alone as a kid. If you all watched Home Alone, love that movie. I kind of wonder how parents could ever do that. And now I have four children and yeah, you know, who knows. But one of the things that I always thought of when I was watching that show as a kid is I was a little bit envious of Macaulay Culkin. I thought it was kind of cool that he had the whole house to himself. And I kind of wished that maybe it would be kind of neat if my parents just blew away for a couple days. It'd be so sweet because then I could do whatever I wanted. I could eat whatever I wanted. I could play video games as much as I wanted. I could do whatever I want. See, parents, aren't, they weren't there to cramp my style. Sure, there's certain things that I want, right? I like the house. I like the clothes. I like the Xbox and the PlayStation, the computer for Fortnite. You know, I need those things. But the thing that we really don't like is when our parents restrain us. And they put restraints in areas where we don't want restraint. And then we're just like Macaulay Culkin and we say, you know what, maybe it's time for you to take a trip. You know, just go away somewhere, leave me some cash so that I can feed myself and get some dominoes, but just feel free to enjoy yourself for a couple of weeks. See, no kid on their way to Disneyland says to their parents, I want new parents. When do we get frustrated with our parents? Usually it's just before bedtime or when curfew is brought down or when uh, parents tell you that you can't go to your friend's house, you can't watch that R-rated film with your buddies, you have to stop playing your video games, you have to eat your broccoli, whatever it is, those are the moments when they start cramping your style, right? Then you kind of want them to go away for a while. Or it's when 
you realize that you are the only teenager in the world, you checked, who doesn't have a cell phone. You know, all your friends have cell phones. Even kids in Africa have cell phones, mom and dad. I'm the only kid who doesn't have one. Why haven't you given me a cell phone? And so we get frustrated with our parents for the things that they do or the things that they don't do, they don't allow us to do. But here's the thing. That's exactly how it is with God and us. Ignoring God always starts with a sense that God is restraining you in the areas where you don't want to be restrained. And you tell God, why don't you go on a vacation for a while? We need a little bit of a time out. I need to enjoy my time with me, the things that I want, the pleasures that I enjoy all by myself. And we see this all over scripture. Think about the, maybe the best example is Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost son. What does he do? He goes up to his father. He says, give me my share of the estate. What's the accusation? Quit bossing me around. Telling me what I have to do, where I have to go, where I have to be. Why don't you give me what's mine so that I can run off. It's kind of home alone, but the father stays home. And I leave to get away from him so that I can do what I want. That's where it always starts, where we ignore God. But the second thing we do is we redefine God. We redefine God. Look at verse 22 and 23. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. See, when we decide we want to shut God out, he obliges. He leaves or he lets you go so that you can run off. But as Paul explains, the way every single human being is hardwired is that we are all made to worship. So when we stop worshiping the immortal, invisible creator God, what we do is we try to fill that God-sized hole in our hearts by starting worshiping created, mortal, visible things. We start giving our heart to those things in order to satisfy all of our needs. And so sure, you, you don't cut out images made of stone that look like birds or fish or, or what Paul's talking about there within that context, but we all still commit idol- idolatry. We can still do that. Let me just show you how easy this is. We might find something in Scripture, even as Christians, we're reading through the pages of Scripture, and we find something we don't like. And we're insulted by it. We're frustrated by it. And so what we do is we try to undercut those features. And before we know it, we start creating a new God made in our own image. And here's what happens. When we go down that path, we suddenly realize that God looks a whole lot less like God and a whole lot more like me. And the cool thing is, at least for me, is that God starts affirming all the things that Justin loves and all the things that Justin is really good at, God is so admiring of. He's just so grateful to have me on his team. And the things that I really stink at, he says, Justin, don't you worry. Those are kind of lower level sins. I got that taken care of. We're doing just great. So rather than worshiping this creator, invisible God who created all things, I start worshiping a God made in the image of me. And in my likeness, to my specifications, and the things that I enjoy. And that is why I often say to you, the mark of a Christian is someone who comes to the Bible with no pretense. 
When the Bible says jump, we say how high. And when we find something that we don't understand or that we have to grapple with, that's where we stop. Maybe we pull out the journal and we say, I don't understand this. And then we go to our life group or to our Christian friends or our pastor or our elder or Christians that we trust. And we say, there's something here about Scripture I don't fully comprehend, but I want to understand the will of God more fully. Could you help me understand this? We always come with open hands as we read Scripture. And that ultimately leads to the third point. And I want you to see that point three is just the fruit of point one and two. So when we ignore God and when we redefine God, here's what happens. We then set aside all physical, emotional, and relational restraints. In other words, we set aside all restraints, no matter what they are. Because here's what happens. When we remove God from our life, and God is the only thing that can satisfy our soul, and we start looking to other things in order to satisfy our soul, and they're not, then we just start doubling down on the pattern. So we're looking for sexual gratification, or we're looking for pride in our own accomplishments, or we're looking for getting ahead or moving up the corporate ladder, or whatever else it may be. And we have this inkling that it's not truly satisfying my soul, but maybe what I got to do is just put my head down and keep pushing and doing more and more of the same, and eventually it will gratify my cravings. Eventually it will truly fulfill and satisfy my soul. And Paul gives us a laundry list. Start at verse 24 with me. I want you to see all the examples that he gives. Chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Now he's going to give us examples, but that's the point. The sinful desires of their hearts. Two, sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. There it is. That's the thesis statement of that whole piece. Because of this, God gave them over, there it is, to the shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not be done. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing new evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And he can go on and on and on and on and on. So he creates this, this huge list of all the things that we can do to run away from God. And so the principle is very simple. When we remove ourselves from God, we create new devices in order to truly satisfy our hearts. Let me just give you two other passages of Scripture that speak to this. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. For the world offers only a craving of physical pleasure. A craving for everything we see. And a pride in our own achievements and possessions. And these are not from the Father but from the world. 
And the second one is Proverbs chapter 27. Just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is also never satisfied. We keep coming back for more and more and more and more, and we're unsatisfied. Why? Again, because we are looking horizontally for what we can only find vertically, and when that happens, we have this gap in our hearts. We're trying to fill it, and God said, I'm the only one who can satisfy your soul. We say, I want nothing to do with you. i got to look for it somewhere else. And it keeps us hungering for more, looking for it in all the wrong places. And so here's what we have to see. The moment we break our vertical relationship with God, all of our horizontal relationships begin to be broken at exactly the same moment. Look again at the examples. Sexual gratification becomes more important than covenantal relationships in the context of spiritual friendship or marriage. It's not too long before gossip becomes really interesting. It's also not too long where slander becomes part of the way that I deal with my enemies. How envy becomes how I view those who excel beyond what I can do myself. Deceit is the method of choice in dealing with conflict, and I covet the things that I cannot have. It's all part and parcel with it. And that leads to the fourth and final point. We do this at the end. We begin to promote and to celebrate what's wrong. We promote and celebrate sin. Look again at verse 32. Verse 32 says this, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Right becomes wrong, and wrong becomes right. I think of Isaiah chapter 5, which says this, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. But I want you, again, to consider the progression. It all starts with verse 21. It all starts with an active choice to run from God, to ignore God, to separate yourself from God, and God simply gives you what you want. And that turns to us wanting to either continue to run from him or to try to redefine him, which is actually the same thing. And then once we do that, we set aside all restraints in order to try and find something to satisfy our soul. And even when it doesn't do that, we just keep doubling down on the pattern. And we start treating right for wrong and wrong for right. But then Paul does something truly remarkable. It's almost as though Paul knows the sinful habit of our hearts because he has a sin nature too. And he does something that I find just so amazing. If you look in chapter 1, what tense are all the words in? You'll see words like people and they and them, right? They're all in third person. And then we see chapter 2, verse 1, and it hits you like a ton of bricks. He pivots, and this is what we read. You. Uh-oh. Circle, highlight, underline you. And maybe in the margins, put your name. Me, Justin, or whatever your name is. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And so I want to very quickly give you two lessons that you can take home with you this week that you can continue to chew on and meditate on as an application. 
the first lesson that I want us to take a look at is this. This isn't a list to show, and this right here, I want to encourage you to put your name there. So I'll do it for me, you do it for you. This isn't a list to show Justin why everyone else needs to change. It's meant to show Justin why he needs Jesus. Do you see that? It's not a list to show us, you know, what's wrong with the world and everyone else out there and so that you can kind of pull out the binoculars and say, yep, that's the problem with the world. Oh, it's our culture. It's the left. It's the right. It's other people. And if if they could just clean up their mess, then the whole world would be a better place. That is not the purpose of this letter. The purpose of this letter is to pull out a big, fat mirror and to say, There's a whole lot more right here at home that we have to work on. That's what Paul wants to do. He wants you to come to grips with the brokenness of your own sin and where it leads so that you can turn back to God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can do this so easy. It's so easy for us to treat the word of God as artillery to condemn others. And Paul, knowing the human heart, the pattern of the human heart, he gets out ahead of it. I think that's the reason why he puts everything in the first chapter in third person. People, they, them, kind of talking about the sin nature of the world as a whole and how it affects everything and everyone. But then he hits it right square in the face and he says, you therefore are without excuse. It's an opportunity for us to look at Scripture and to realize that it ultimately, the reason why Jesus came from heaven to earth and he went to Golgotha, the land of the skull, why he stretched out his hands was for you. For you. So that you could be saved. So that you could be redeemed. And that ultimately is what leads to our final point, but let me read verses 2 through 4 first. It, start, it ends this way. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, there it is again, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? And this is so critical. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Circle, highlight, underline. Paul says, Justin, put the binoculars away. There's a whole lot here right at home that you have to work on for you to realize the sin nature that you bear, the necessity of the cross, the offensiveness of it. You have to come to terms with that and it ought to humble you to the core so that you will lead to repentance and you will be so gripped the same way Paul is by this message that it will inspire you to communicate that message with others. Not as harsh condemnation, but as an invitation to follow him. And that leads to the second and final point. The solution to a messed up culture isn't to make non-Christians act like Christians. The solution is to introduce them to Jesus. And maybe this is a a crass way of saying this, but if your only motivation is to make non-Christians act more like Christians, then all you're doing is populating hell with nicer people. You're not doing anything to advance the gospel itself. 
Because we believe in the doctrine of sanctification, that the moment we come to know Jesus is the moment that he comes into our life and he changes us from the inside out. He is the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who inspires change. He is the one who makes us kingdom citizens. So if your motivation is for your province here in BC or wherever you're watching, or your nation or your world to be changed, then your only motivation ought to be the same as Paul's motivation to introduce them to Jesus, to share how God has influenced your life, to do exactly the same thing that we saw this morning already with Janae and Sydney and Lauren, an openness and a willingness to share your story about how God has impacted your life even in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your sin, which leads to repentance and to joy and to be inspired to share that message. And so that's my hope for you as we continue through this book that we would lay a good foundation, that we would understand more fully the brokenness that is our sin nature, so that as we learn more about the person and work of Jesus, it would be infinitely sweet and amazing and beautiful. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus who made a way for us, and that without him, we would just be broken, sinful people who are still on that path running away from you, ignoring you, fleeing from you, and looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. But we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you have been prompting us to take that next step in our journey of faith, to go all in on you, to invest in you, that you would make the ultimate investment in us. And Lord, in those times when we fail, like we know we will, we ask that you would continue to walk with us, challenging and motivating us from the inside out, and also give us a great enthusiasm and eagerness to share this with others who do not yet know your name. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen.